with God's help, if you would turn your hearts and give your attention to the reading of God's word from Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come to you today asking that you would grant the outpouring of your spirit as we come to open your word. Lord, I pray that you would illuminate the scriptures to our hearts and minds. I pray that you would grant us the grace to believe, to walk in obedience, Lord, I pray for your help in preaching this passage. I pray that you would give an an unprofitable servant your power. And I, I ask also that you would grant to your people listening ears. I pray that Christ would be lifted up. In Jesus' name, amen. Almost every New Testament scholar you read agrees that this is one of the most challenging parables in the entire Bible. We were talking about this on the way to church today with my kids, and my son said that he had read the footnotes and they were of no help. Out of all of the parables in the Bible, this this is indeed one of the most perplexing. You've got a manager 
on the verge of being fired, who writes off, he dares to write off a significant portion of his master's debt, and then the master commends him. The master commends him for his shrewdness. On top of that, Jesus says there's a lesson here for us. As his disciples, the Lord takes this dishonest, unethical businessman, and then he turns to his disciples and says, you could really learn something here. All kinds of questions are raised. Um, J.C. Ryle, who I've I've referenced a number of times in our our study through this book, um, I've always found him to be just uh, very lucid and penetrating in his insights. He can take the the most the, the densest of passages and just lay them open for you. Well, he begins his thoughts on this section by saying this, the passage we have now read is a difficult one. There are knots in it which perhaps will never be untied until the Lord comes again. But then he goes on and he says something really important. He says something that we would do well to consider anytime we find ourselves in this position, anytime we we bump up against something in the word that's difficult to understand. He says so plainly, the fault lies not in the book but in our own feeble understandings. That's where the fault lies. So if we can grant that, if we can grant that the fault lies with us and we can come with humble hearts seeking the Spirit's help, he will help us. He'll help us. So let's let's consider this together. I want you to notice first that just broadly speaking, there is a parallel in our text today with the text that we looked at last week, if you were with us, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, the prodigal, just as his name implies, he, he squandered his property in reckless living. Well, here you get into the next chapter and you've got another man who was wasting his possessions. Uh, But you also see there's an important change. And the change is this, there is a shift in the audience. Verse one tells us Jesus is now speaking to his disciples. No longer is he addressing the Pharisees primarily. It's a similar theme, but it's a different audience. He is now addressing those who would follow him And like many of his parables, he has something to say about money and our treasures, our possessions, how we use them in the service of his kingdom. He's not rebuking the Pharisees. They're still there. They're there on the periphery. We're going to see that when you get down to verse 14. But this is directed to disciples. So know your audience. Jesus wants his disciples then and now to think about what faithfulness with regard to money and treasures and possessions looks like as citizens of the kingdom of God. So he describes this man who is put in charge of a rich man's estate as a really good position to have in the first century world. So much so that many were, they were willing to sell themselves into that kind of position. Now, for whatever reason, this particular man has been taking advantage of his position. We don't know exactly what the situation was, whether he's siphoning off the top, whether he's just not collecting on his master's debts, just derelict in his duties. But for whatever reason, charges are brought to the manager against, or to the rich man against the manager. And that manager calls the manager, or that rich man calls the manager in for a reckoning. This is, it's time to give an account now. Verse two, he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. Notice that the manager doesn't dispute anything. He doesn't dispute the charges. He realizes the jig is up. My time here is over. Um, There are a couple really key features in the story that Jesus tells that help us to make sense of its message 
and its its application. And this is one, the, the manager who is supposed to be stewarding the rich man's resources has heard the master announce his appointed end. Hold on to that in, in your mind as we work through this passage, as we make our way along. The manager who is, he has, he's supposed to be stewarding these resources has heard the master announce his appointed end. And so now he's, he's ousted from his position and he begins to formulate his plans. Now, first he realizes, well, there's some things that just aren't options for me. He says, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm, an, I'm ashamed to beg. Where does that leave him? Well, look at verse four, if you will. This is another key statement. He says, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So what is the guiding factor in his decision-making process? He wants to be received into people's homes. Hospitality, or you could say a place of rest, is what, he is go- is what he's looking for. Who is going to welcome him? Who will receive him into his home? Well, as we come to find out, it's those who are told that, that, that he can cut them a break on the debt that they're in. Now, I want you to notice here, though, just mark this as well in your mind, the motivation for doing this. This now ex-manager, he needs to ingratiate himself to to people so he has something to, to fall back on. Everything that he's doing is for himself. Everything that he's doing is for his own selfish ends. That's going to be important a little bit later when Jesus turns to his disciples and he makes application to them. So one by one, the the manager summons the master's debtors. That idea of one by one, that suggests there's quite a few here who, who are in view. Probably the rich man is a truly rich man to have this many debtors. Uh, the text here gives us just two representative figures. The manager brings them forward, and each of them are given this very generous deal. One of them, their debt is cut by 20%. Uh, The other, his debt is cut by half. Half of his debt is just just wiped away. Now, they're still in debt. They still still have an obligation to to the master, but they're in a lot better position than they were before. Now, This is just one of the places in this passage where all kinds of questions begin to spring up in our minds. We wonder, well, why would the manager be allowed to do something like this? Or was he even allowed to do something like this? Did he just lower the amount of debt in a sort of arbitrary way? Uh, Was he removing his commission off the top. That's one of the theories that some have put forward here. Was he trying to take interest off that was involved here to make his master's books look better on the way out? Maybe his master was uh, uh, abusing lending practices and putting in place exorbitant usury. And so, so he's trying to pretty things up on the way out and gain favor in his, his master's eyes. You know, brothers and sisters, in the end, it doesn't really matter. The text doesn't tell us. And it's really not the point of the passage. The emphasis here is that the manager is now in the position of being the benefactor to these people where he's cut their debt. He's now in this position where he has every reason to expect that his hope of hospitality, his expectation of being received into their homes is going to be realized. Now, we come to verse 8, and this is where Jesus says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And we think to ourselves again, what? What in the world is going on here? 
Well, there are some very important things to notice. First of all, you know, why would the master commend the manager? Why does Jesus seem to speak approvingly of the whole matter? Notice the language very carefully in verse 8. And what I mean is this. The master commends the manager for his shrewdness. The master commends the manager for his shrewdness. It is Jesus who describes the manager as being dishonest. You see the distinction there? Okay. The manager is not commended because he's dishonest, but because he's shrewd, he's crafty. We need, to, we need to get that straight in, in our minds or we're going to draw the wrong conclusions and we're going to make the wrong application. The master approves of the manager's sense when it comes to business practices, but Jesus is the narrator. Jesus is the narrator of this story and Jesus calls the manager dishonest. We need to remember that. Don't miss that, young people. Jesus does not commend dishonesty in the passage. That brings us to another important contrast in, in the second half of verse 8. This is You could describe this as Jesus' inspired commentary on the parable. And this is where we, he, he really begins to get us thinking about the points of connection with the story and our own lives. He says, for the sons of this world, or you could say the sons of this age, that's another way you could translate this, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. You see the contrast Jesus is drawing. You have, on the one hand, sons of this world, and then on the other, sons of light. In 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, Paul writes to the church there and he says, You are all, speaking to the church, children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Christ has, through the blood of his cross, delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus describes it here in terms of two generations. There are, there's the generation of this world, the, the sons of this world, and then you have the sons of light or the, the generation that is to come. Two different eons are in view. And followers of Christ are not to live as if this age, this generation is where we belong. As if this generation is all that there is. That is what Christ Jesus is driving at. And he, he gives us a surprising but helpful example here about how we as the people of God are to conceive of and utilize the days that are allotted to us until Christ returns. In the parable, the master announces the end. He says, the end has come. Now, what does the manager do? He shrewdly assesses the situation and he devises a plan on the basis of what the master has revealed. Do you see the lesson? He shrewdly assesses the situation and he devises a plan on the basis of what the master has revealed. Immediately, he sets to work. Immediately, he gets busy. He is not going to be found without a place to dwell. Now, in that regard, the sons of this generation, the sons of this world are more shrewd. They're more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than, the, than many sons of light. They are more shrewd than many who have heard the announcement 
of their appointed eternal end. Many who have heard the proclamation of the gospel that all men will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a day appointed in which he will come to judge the living and the dead. And remember, he is speaking to sons of light. He's speaking to believers who, who trust in what has been revealed in Christ. They trust that there will be a reckoning. They believe this. They are no doubt sons of light, sons of the age to come, and yet they're not shrewd like the sons of this world. Where, in other words, is the action on their part? Where is the spiritual shrewdness, if you will? Where is that sense of urgency and activity and investment in the age to come, concern for the future that says, I must be ready. I will not be found unprepared on that day, when that day comes. If you look at verse 9, Jesus actually takes the example of this dishonest manager and he turns it into a principle by which the people of God are to live. Not in his dishonesty, but in his shrewdness. This is Christ's application. He says this, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, some of us, I think if we were being honest with one another, almost find ourselves recoiling a little bit internally when we hear that language there. We find ourselves almost instinctively aghast or uneasy because we, we, we think, well, how can Jesus encourage the use of unrighteous wealth or the mammon of unrighteousness? as the, the King James translates it. How does that comport with the call to live holy, righteous lives? Well, again, we have to read the text carefully. We have to make careful distinctions. Notice, brothers and sisters, Jesus is not commending unrighteousness itself. He is not even commending unrighteous wealth he is simply encouraging his people to take those things which belong to the world, those things which will not last, those things which have no eternal value in and of themselves, and use them, use them advantageously for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom of God. Unrighteous wealth, that's just another way of talking about money, and possessions, and treasure, those things are to be used redemptively by the people of God. They're to be used for good, gracious purposes. Unrighteous wealth, Jesus describes here, as means. It's a means. It's an instrument to be used in the service of Christ, in the service of the one who has redeemed us. What does that look like in practical terms? Jesus tells us one really big fundamental idea here, one key theme. He says, make friends. Make friends for yourselves. Wisely steward the resources that you have to make friends for yourself. Just like that dishonest manager who was so shrewd in his business practices, ingratiate yourself, not for your own selfish purposes, but with the express purpose of winning men and women who, because of God's good work in their lives, might become known as friends in the Lord Jesus Christ to you. 
Isn't that a wonderful picture? That, that is, that's what we're after here. So give, give sacrificially to those who are in need. Take every opportunity to give. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 18, we heard it this morning. Be generous and ready to share. Be, be looking for opportunities to give, to be ready to share. Look for ways to use your finances to advance the work of the kingdom. Uh, open your home. Open your home to those who are not yet in Christ. That's stewarding well those resources that have been entrusted to you. Take your lost neighbor out to coffee with the intention of making inroads for the sake of the gospel. That is making friends for yourself with the mammon of unrighteousness. Incline your heart and incline your pocketbook toward the propagation of the work of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul talks about this way of generous thinking at length. This is where the collection for the saints in Jerusalem is being taken up. And the Apostle Paul there reminds us that this, this kind of call, the call to so bountifully, isn't this heavy, uh, burdensome thing that weighs upon the people of God. If you know and love the Lord, you delight in, 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 in giving generously. Uh, you, you delight in spending and being spent for the sake of the gospel. You know that that's not anything you do to, to gain the favor of God. Uh, philanthropy won't get you into heaven. It is because we have been loved freely. We have been loved so generously in Christ. He says there in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 9, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His gracious work, you see, provides for us the paradigm it provides for us the pattern for thinking and for living and for writing checks and giving money for the sake of the gospel. He continues, 2 Corinthians 9, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Paul's words there in that passage are so helpful for us. He talks about your submission, the submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. With your faith in the finished work of Christ comes submission to kingdom enterprise. Excitement about being about the work of ministry. Freely you have received, freely give. So Jesus calls us in Luke 16 to be godly, honest, righteously shrewd managers of what he has entrusted to us. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus when he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I pray you, you know that in your own experience. Maybe you know a little hint of what he says when he says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. 
Now, there is that, that vital follow-up, that purpose clause that undergirds this whole injunction. He says, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. You see what Jesus is saying? He is absolutely explicit here. His disciples do not live this way with the hope of being repaid in this life. We do not operate in this kind of way in some sort of tit-for-tat method. The first century world in the ancient Near East operated in this way. It operated on a kind of patronage system where your social status was was inseparably linked to, to your economic status. And your your network of friends was very much bound up in how well off you were doing financially. It was bound up in uh, those who were indebted to you. The, the manager in this parable is operating with that kind of mindset in view. He's, he's functioning on a give-to-get kind of system. The only reason that he cut the deal that he did was because he wanted to get out of the master's debtors something he wanted. He wanted to get them over a barrel so that he could have a place to live. Well, not so in Christ. Our hope is spiritual reward. It's eternal reward, spiritual fruit. So Jesus says here, in effect, if you have found yourself in me, you have found the true and lasting treasure, and so you're free to give away all that will not last anyway. Give away what is destined to fail. Is that how you think about money? Use it for all it's worth for the cause of the kingdom so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. That is the kind of welcome to pursue. One man, David Gooding, gives a a very helpful, concrete example of this. He says this, If when accounts are rendered and it becomes known in heaven that it was your sacrificial giving that provided the copies of the Gospel of John, which led a whole tribe out of paganism to faith in Christ, will not that tribe show toward you an eternal gratitude which they will not show toward me who spent my spare cash on some luxury for my enjoyment. You see, our investment in kingdom enterprises serves to multiply joy all around for all of eternity. That brings us full circle to this whole idea of stewardship and accountability Jesus begins with. If you turn your attention to verse 10, He says there, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. Again, you you see the principle here, beloved. Christ is calling us to be faithful. He's calling us to be spiritually shrewd with whatever he has trusted to us, however much that may be. Be faithful in the smallest things. It's in the little things that the Lord first tests your integrity, that he first tests your character, your faithfulness. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. What does faithfulness look like in this particular context? It's stewarding the resources that you have been given for the sake of the gospel, being generous toward kingdom priorities. It's not a matter of how much you give. It has nothing to do with how many zeros come after whatever you give to whatever kingdom cause. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has not according to what he does not have. If the readiness 
is there. In other words, if the disposition of the heart is in the right place, however many zeros fall after that number, it doesn't matter in the slightest. That does not matter in the eyes of God. It's a question of faithfulness. That's what he is concerned with. One who is faithful in a very little is going to be faithful in much. You know, we like to tell ourselves, well, if I had more money, I'd give more. I'd give more to the Lord. Jesus says that isn't true. It isn't true. What we are with what we have today is what we are. It's what we are. Now, praise God, Christ can change our hearts. He can change us. He can work in us. He can make us more like him. In fact, he delights to do that. He delights to take sinful, selfish, self-oriented people and make them like the Savior. Make them more self-sacrificial, more self-sacrificing, more self-denying, more eager to give. And that's exactly what this passage is designed to do in our hearts, to shake us from our attachment to the things of this world and remind us what's of true value in the economy of God. Jesus tells us, he says, and righteous wealth is going to fail. It's going to fail. In verse 11, he says that money, that unrighteous wealth, it isn't true riches anyway. It's not true riches. In fact, he says there, if if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust entrust to you the true riches, literally the true thing? When he says true riches, he's inviting us. He's, He's challenging us to lift our eyes toward those things of temporal concern, those things that we're so often consumed with, and direct our attention to, to, to what's of eternal value, to, to heavenly reward. And he's actually encouraging us here. He encourages us to lay up treasure in heaven. In verse 12, if you look there, he reminds you that, that even what you have isn't your own. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? See, embedded in that statement is the same thing that was true of the dishonest manager. We have been entrusted with resources and talents and gifts and wealth that are another's, capital A, David says in 1 Chronicles 29, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. It all belongs to him. It is all his. Everything really comes down to one statement in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't serve two masters. Brothers and sisters, how, how many try to do the very thing that the Lord Jesus Christ says cannot be done? How many attempt to claim Christ as Lord, while at the same time set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Our our flesh does everything that it can to try to convince us that there's a way to straddle that line, that there's a third way. Brothers and sisters, it's a delusion. You cannot do it. The love of money is a root of all kinds of of evils. It is through this craving that some have what? 
wandered away, wandered away from the, from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You see the net effect here. The love of money draws you away. It draws you away from faith in Jesus Christ. There is no way that you can love money and love him at the same time. You cannot serve money and serve him at the same time. You'll either hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Church, let me ask you this. How do we know if we're a lover of money? What do you spend it on? Do you use it in the service of God or do you spend your life serving it? Look at your bank account. Better yet, look at your heart. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What do you long for? What do you dream about? When you think about the potential of earning more money or getting the next raise or setting money aside, what motivates you? What drives you to do those, those things? How does God figure into your ambitions? How does making friends for yourself figure in to those pursuits? My, my prayer today is that God would use this text to stimulate our hearts and our minds so that these kinds of kingdom priorities would loom so large in our hearts as a people. Jesus says to orient our lives around what neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and and steal. Learn from the dishonest manager. You're sons of light. You are sons of the, the generation that is to come. Orient your life around that new era that has come in Christ. That's where Jesus takes us next. In verse 14, Uh, It says there that the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So while Jesus has been talking to his disciples, the Pharisees have still been there. They've still been eavesdropping, uh, listening in on the side. And what do they do? They mock Jesus. This is always what you're going to find. Wherever there is a heart that is not subject to, to the person and work of Christ, to the authority of Christ that is not submitted to the word of Christ, this is what you're going to find. You'll always be able to find a reason to ridicule and sneer at at the word of Jesus Christ. And Jesus tells them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. God's economy is not like your own. It's not just that you count different things valuable. This is not just a matter of preference. You know, you can ask my wife, if we go out to eat, I'm going to choose beef over chicken any day of the week. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not what we're talking about. Jesus says the things the world exalts, the things it lifts up and says, Here's what we really prize are an abomination to to God. They're detestable in his sight. Now, why is that? This is an important question. It's important to this context. Remember, we've already said, we've already seen Christ tell us Money, possessions, treasures are are to be employed for the sake of the kingdom. We are not looking at something that is inherently evil. We're not talking, for example, about pornography or theft or drunkenness. We're talking about possessions, wealth. None of those things are inherently evil, and we have a false sense of piety if we think that they are. This is a passage that it really disabuses us of that that kind of notion. So why then does Jesus say that whatever is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God, money included? Because nothing else deserves to be exalted except for God. Nothing deserves to be exalted except for God and God 
alone. It's because of the place those things occupy in the heart of man. The Pharisees were lovers of money. They had an an inordinate desire for money. They loved money more than they loved him. Look, if, if you will, at what Jesus says in verses 16 to 17. He says there, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. We have seen for a number of weeks that the fact that Jesus ate with uh, sinners, that he received them, that was a real point of contention for the Pharisees. They, they, they looked at him, and because of this, they assumed that he had relaxed the law of God. It was because of this point that they really had an axe to grind with Christ. And that's the root of their offense. How can Jesus continue to associate with the kind of people that he does without violating the law of God? Especially when you you think about its concerns regarding uh, holiness and purity and separation from what is unclean. You could put it another way. The Pharisees want to frame things up and, and say this. Well, we are the ones who are committed to the law. We're committed to the law of God and here you come along. With your ministry program, you're eating, you're drinking with sinners, you show hospitality to just about anyone, it would seem. You make friends for yourself with just about anyone, no questions asked, it would seem. What gives, on what basis do you defend yourself? Well, Jesus' answer here is amazing. He says, in effect, we are in a new era as it relates to the expansive reach of the grace of God. In former days, things were largely limited to the Jews. Not anymore, though. The good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And what happened? It brought in the low, the despised, the outcast, those who were on the fringes of society, the people that didn't fit in the mold, the people that were rejected by the Pharisees. Jesus came and in Luke chapter 4, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a watershed moment. In, in redemptive history. Uh, John the Baptist is, is the bridge. He's the bridge between these two epics of redemptive history. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Jesus is quick to add this. He's, he says, It is not as if the law and the prophets have slipped into oblivion never to be seen again. It is not as if they have no relevance this day. The dot there, that is a a small, tiny little mark on some uh, Hebrew letters. And Jesus is saying here that not even uh, the tiniest part of the law will become void. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In Matthew 5, he, he puts it this way, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And he, in our passage, immediately goes on to stress the continued validity of the law. And yet there is a new day. There is a new day in Christ. And what was must be understood in light of what has come in Christ. You cannot properly understand the Old Testament without reading it in light of the new. The kingdom of God is come. Now, what does it call for? Jesus says here, it calls for a kind of holy violence. The good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. It calls the people of God to to make that 
decisive break with the world, to bow at the feet of King Jesus and no one else. It calls for single-minded, self-denying, an earnest determination to force your way by faith into the kingdom of God. Rid yourself of this kind of laissez-faire mindset, this kind of attitude toward your eternal end. Repent of your apathy and by God's grace, strive, strive to enter through the narrow door. Let it be your unrelenting, zealous resolution to do what was read in our hearing earlier today. Take hold of that which is truly life, that true treasure in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. God, we're thankful for its power and its profitability to our souls. God, we thank you for how you use it to bring uh, reproof and correction and training and righteousness that the man of God may be equipped complete, equipped for every good work. Lord, we, we need this uh, multifaceted work of your word at work in our lives. Lord, we are convicted in many ways of uh, the ways that we have not lived shrewdly, wisely, as good stewards of what has been entrusted to us. Lord, we, we find ourselves taking what we we know is going to fail and using it in any way as if it's going to last forever. God, I pray that this passage would truly serve to minister to our hearts and to correct us and train our hearts and minds. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness that leads us to repentance. Thank you, Father, uh, for those who uh, gave and invested in our lives that we might be brought in to your kingdom. God, we, we do pray that you would uh, do a work in us so that we would have joyful, uh, generous hearts, hearts that are far more eager and delighted to see uh, new friends in Christ brought into the kingdom than we are concerned with laying up treasures on earth. God, I pray that we would be wholly fixed on knowing and loving and serving you as our, our one and only master. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.